ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Sydney's second hydrofoil shows her paces in harbour trials before going into service. Named Fairlight, the Italian-built craft cost $500,000. Twin propellers set behind the afterfoils reduce the risk of damage from harbour debris. Back in the late 1960s, early 70s, it was the cool way to cross Sydney Harbour. The hydrofoil was a speedboat with skis bolted onto the front. And it moved like no other boat you'd ever seen before. Because as the boat picked up speed, the front of its hull lifted out of the water and then the vessel just planed across the harbour. It was super fast compared to conventional ferries and it seemed like the future. In the same way that the Concorde at the time seemed like the future of flying. But somehow, just like the Concorde, the hydrofoil well, it never quite managed to reach its potential. Boat designer Gustav Hasselskog. As you say, the big sort of boom was during the 60s and the 70s, especially within the military. Both the Russians and the Americans were into hydrofalls and there were some commercial use, especially in Asia. I think the key uh, reason for the use of hydrofoils at the time was that you could increase the range of the vessels, especially in military uses, that was that was a key thing. It was not very much driven by the cost of fuel or any environmental concerns. And if you don't see any advantage in not sort of polluting and using a lot of gasoline, I think then the equation doesn't add up really. But times have changed. And polluting less and being able to make public transport faster and more efficient... Well, it's just possible the hydrofoil is having a second coming. A new take on an old idea. That's the rough theme for this week's Future Tense, as we look at not only hydrofoils, but electrified roads and floating gardens. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. We started this project uh, close to one and a half year ago. We wanted to uh, take everything we have learned from C7, our first boat, and make it even better. So we are looking at the, uh, well, the best boat in the world. I joined Candela less than a year ago. Then this boat was like a sketch on a piece of paper. And now it's, now it's here and it's, it's, it's incredible. Now Candela is a Swedish company and it's one of several European firms involved in reinventing hydrofoil technology. Once again, giving it a public purpose. And Gustav Hasselskog is the company's CEO and founder. The hydrofoil is fantastic in the sense that you can build a vessel that consumes something like 75 to 80% less energy. And the problem with boats and electrification are that batteries are not very energy dense. So you end up with a lot of batteries, but still you don't have a range enough. And hydrofoil is a solution to that. We started with the leisure boats, and then we realized sort of to have real impact in terms of environmental impact, what we should go after is, is the commercial market and the Key reason for that is that those boats are used very much more, of course, than, than leisure boats are used. And we also see that the fact that we can lower the energy cost so much, that means that operators will save money by using our vessels, and, and therefore it's a very attractive market. And, uh, yeah, for the operators, I think key reasons for using them is, uh, you know, first of all, the, the reduced costs. We also see that the hydrofall is create basically no wake, so... Uh, it's good for the shorelines and you, you sort of reduce the erosions of the shorelines 
but it also means that in many stretches you can uh, get permission to run faster than traditional ferries because of the sort of no wake that you have. And the first ferry we're going to run in Stockholm in a public transportation setting and there we have got that permission. So we're going to, instead of running it for 50 minutes as it take with the current ferry, we're going to do it in 25 minutes. So commuters are going to save 50 minutes per day, which is, of course, fantastic. We essentially combine two technologies. One is the hydrofoil technology, which compared to a, a normal planing hull is way more efficient. And then we build the vessels very light and the energy consumption is simply linear to the mass of the boat. So by combining those with a ferry, we reach uh, like an 80% energy reduction. If you express it in terms of lift to drag ratio, we are more than 20 with the ferry. For birds, you know, the smallest, most efficient birds, like a sparrow, there are like five in lifted drag rate. So a normal traffic airplane, like a Boeing on an Airbus, they are around 15 and we are above 20 and we are pretty close to an albatross, which is the most efficient bird. With the design of this P-12, you use a a catamaran-like design, don't you, for the hull, not the more traditional V-shape. What's the significance there? Why take that approach? Well, there are several reasons for that. One is if you run in, in rough sea, you want to have sort of maximum stability in the vessel in the event you touch the peaks of the waves uh, with the hull. You want to have a wide boat. The other aspect here is that we want to make the vessel very efficient also at lower speeds. In many cities, especially close to town, you have speed limitations of, say, 12 knots. And then we cannot foil, but we still want to have so the most efficient vessel you can build. For those speeds and then catamaran is you know impossible to beat and then also from a hydrodynamical perspective once you're on the foils the ideal foil is slim and wide again comparing with birds and you know an, an albatross has very long wings a sparrow has shorter wings and uh, that relationship with the span and the cord as it's called of the wing that drives the efficiency very much so we want to have a, a wide wing and therefore we have to have a wide boat and then catamaran is a good thing As I mentioned, Candelar isn't the only company experimenting with hydrofoils. The UK government is funding a three-year study testing several prototypes designed by Artemis Technologies, and those ferries will be trialled on routes between the Orkney Islands at the very top of Scotland. That pilot project is due to start in early 2024, and that's roughly when the P-12 electric hydrofoil developed by Candelar will begin its operations in the waters in and around Stockholm. So we're going to run from a suburb outside Stockholm into the town hall of the city. There is a traffic in place today. They're using two ferries. They take 200 passengers each. And we will be able to replace that with only three of our ferries, despite them only having 30 seats in each of them. The key thing here, really the, the shortening of the commuting time. So, and I think... That we see in very many cities around the world, with being at sort of Mumbai or San Francisco, New York, and so forth, that there is a lot of problem with congested car traffic. And we see great opportunity to open up the waterways again and use the, the oldest way of transporting oneself in a very modern fashion. And this operation in Stockholm is, is just a test, is that correct? Do you expect it to be ongoing? Is that the, the hope? Exactly. It, it is a test. So it's kind of an evaluation that we do together with the with the city of Stockholm to see whether this technology could be used also going forward. 
But then in parallel with that, we have quite a few orders now around the world. So we're going to start operations in Switzerland. We have orders from the U.S. and San Francisco, Belize, Mexico, Berlin, yeah, and a few more. So more are going to come, but Stockholm is going to be the, the first ferry we have in operation. Now, with this new generation of hydrofoil technology, the twin hulls of the boat lift completely out of the water when it's travelling at top speed. The foils, the skis, do all the work. And they're faster and cleaner to operate than non-electric vehicles. But of course, batteries aren't environmentally neutral. Mining the rare earth minerals used to create them can take an enormous toll on nature. Getting the balance right between benefits and costs is crucial for any new approach or invention. So as part of Candelar's P12 development, Stockholm's Royal Institute of Technology undertook a life cycle analysis of the craft. What we found was for the ferry was that unlike electrical cars, there was a benefit by uh, using our vessels already before you put it into water. The typical problem with battery-powered vehicles is the fact that batteries are not super good for the environment. So you have sort of an environmental deficit when you start. And then the more kilometers you do, the better it is, because then you sort of pay back the disadvantage you have in the beginning by running a lot and, and offsetting the initial problems by, by not sort of polluting at all. But in our case, the study found that we had this advantage already from the beginning. And, and the key reason for that is the fact that we use so little material in the boat. As mentioned, we, uh, we strive to optimize it quite a bit on weight, and that means less material usage, and that means less environmental impact during the construction phase, which is then offsetting the use of batteries. So, uh, yeah, that was a bit surprising, but of course, great for us. And look, just finally, I mean, I suppose what's interesting about this, isn't it, is that you know, hydrofoils have been around for a while, but it's this marrying of hydrofoils and electric batteries in, the, in this kind of public transport idea that would seem to have enormous potential. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the perfect couple, really, because, uh, you know, batteries are great in the sense that it's a solution to parts of the, of the climate change uh, problem, but they are heavy. So you need to reduce the energy to make them usable. And the hydrofoil technology can do that. And if you combine them, you, you get something fantastic. Now, we're going to stay in Sweden for a bit as we look at another interesting experiment involving a rethinking of past technologies. There was a time when trains were powered by steam or diesel and trams were pulled by horses. And then somebody had the bright idea of electrifying the network. Today, we take the electrification of rail for granted. But when it comes to roads, well, roads remain the preserve of the combustion engine and increasingly the rechargeable battery. But here's a thought. Why not follow the example of rail and electrify our streets? Jan Peterson, the Director of Strategic Development at Sweden's Department of Transport. In Sweden, we have a very ambitious goal how to decarbonize the transport sector. So we have a goal that says that by 2045, we would have zero net emission of CO2 from the transport sector, both road, railways, aviation and maritime. So we really need to push the electrification issue. And of course, I mean, electrification of 
private cars, I mean, that is already up and running with fully battery electric vehicles. But we see a challenge for the heavy duty vehicles because we are not really convinced that the only solution a way forward is just to build bigger and heavier batteries for supplying heavy duty vehicles with electrification. So we think we need to find smarter solutions. So we are looking upon a number of solutions to decarbonize heavy duty vehicles where electrified road system is one of them. And if we can use electrified road system, we can reduce the battery size, maybe up to 70 or 75%, something like that. And of course, that would be very interesting. Okay, so we'll come to the question of how exactly you go about electrifying a road in just a minute. But first, let's get some clarity on what types of vehicles would benefit most from the process. Heavy transport, light passenger vehicles, or both? I mean, we have tested four different kind of electrified road systems in Sweden, and three of them can be used for all types of light and heavy duty vehicles. But so far, I would say the interest from the industry regarding private light vehicles is not so much of interest, even though 80 to 90 percent of all the batteries will be in private cars. So, of course, in the future, if we can have ERS that also can supply all types of vehicles, that of course would be good. And we know, for instance, we are cooperating a lot with Germany and France. And I would say France has a very, very big interest in electrified light vehicles by using electrified road systems because they have more of light duty vehicles in, in France, for instance. There are also a number of studies now regarding the cost for the users because in the future it seems like heavy-duty vehicles that will use electrified road system has the potential to become the cheapest vehicle in the future. There is an OCD report now that is very clear about that. So that is also part of the analyze. Now let me run through the options for road electrification. The most obvious one is to follow the tram example and have vehicles powered from overhead lines. But if we're talking about electrifying major arterial roads using that approach, well, that's going to involve a lot of cabling and get pretty unsightly, as you can imagine. Another option is to have an electrified rail built into the surface of the road. Now, the idea there is that as a vehicle drives along the road, a hanging attachment under the car or truck would brush over the top of the rail and draw electricity in that way. Which reminds me of those old-fashioned slot car sets that were really popular when I was a kid. A third way to power the vehicles is via induction, building a charging system into the road that transfers electricity via a type of wireless system. So in the case of Sweden's electric road project, what option seems at this stage to be the most promising? Well, that is the million dollar question. So, so far we are technology neutral in Sweden. So we are continuing to analyze all different kinds of technologies, even though we today have dismantled two of them. So we have only one road-bound rail system and the inductor system still being tested in Sweden. But for instance, Germany has now seven test sites and France is going to build three test sites. So we have a close cooperation with them. So we will continue to follow all technologies. 
I think it's too early for us to say that one system is better than the other. They have, they have all, all the th- systems have pros and cons. And I know you talked about uh, battery size as being an issue earlier, but what's the overall advantage from building this kind of system? Why not put the money, the expense that would go into developing this kind of system into trying to develop lighter batteries? Well, I think we need to do both. But so far, we don't see this development that we will have these light batteries so we can uh, really electrify the heavy-duty wheels in a good way. Because so far, we are talking about a number of tons of batteries in heavy-duty vehicles. So we think we need to find other solutions. And as I said, electrified drill system, we can reduce the battery size a lot. And by that, lower the cost for the vehicles, but it doesn't influence the loading factor also of the vehicle. That is also very interesting. The socioeconomic models is also important regarding that issue. But, I mean, we are testing others. We are talking about other systems also. I mean, battery swapping, hydrogen. Of course, now in Europe, it is decided to build static charging infrastructure across Europe on the big roads and also hydrogen fueling stations. So, I mean, we are talking about a number of solutions. So we don't think there is one silver bullet to solve this. We think we need a number of solutions. So it's not just Sweden's Department of Transport that's exploring the possibility of electrified roads, or at least electrified lanes on major thoroughfares that could be used exclusively for heavy transport, because that's another option under exploration. But what about the expense involved? Dr Sonia Ye is a professor in transport and energy systems at Chalmers University. The disadvantages, obvious one, is there's a very high cost of building out electric road in the first place. The technology is still in experimental stage. You know, there there hasn't been any kind of large-scale applications, so there's the technology is still not mature yet. And it's also very expensive to build out, you know, the first kilometer, second, you know, the first 10 kilometers and so on and so forth. It hasn't been scaled up yet. And the upfront cost is very high. And I think that's a main disadvantage. But could this be a case of build it and they will come? Because Dr. Ye's research indicates there could be benefits for car owners in the future if and when those initial costs are met. So in order for cars to take advantage of such a system, they need to install a pickup, what I call pickup system, at the bottom of the car. So when the car drives on that electric road, they will also be able to pick up energy. And there are several degrees, uh, depending on assumptions of how much energy you could pick up. Well, you could pick up as much energy as you consume. So you, you would be kind of energy neutral, or you can also... If you increase that charging rate, you can also charge while you are on the road. And the benefit would be you would be able to charge while you drive and reduce the need for stationary charging and reduce the battery size, also reduce the com- what we commonly call range anxiety, where you worry about you don't have enough range to reach your destination. And the most interesting finding from our study is if we have an electric road system that's built for trucks, so they are located where there's a heavy traffic for trucks, what would be the potential benefit? And we find that the average benefit for all drivers 
is about 70% means that the average car driver can reduce their battery size by up to 70% if they are able to charge on the electric road while they're doing their daily business and driving around like usual. But again, as you've pointed out, the infrastructure costs, the initial infrastructure costs are quite significant. Yes, yes. You know, I, I think the first decision to make whether to build the electric road or not is really to look at the benefit for trucks. But we kind of look at the question in terms of can this benefit car drivers? And if it does, then how much benefit in terms of a total battery savings by reducing the size of battery for all drivers? And what we found is that the benefit for the cars drivers alone can overcompensate for the capital costs of building the electric road. Professor Sonja Ye from Chalmers University in Sweden. So far on the show, we've looked at new electric hydrofoils and at the possibility of turning our streets into real-time vehicle recharging units. Our final focus is on hydroponics and floating garden beds. Not far from the town of Siem Reap in northwest Cambodia, you'll find Tonle Sap, the largest freshwater lake in Southeast Asia. It's famous for its floating villages. People in the region not only live on the lake, they also grow vegetables on it, making their garden beds on top of small floating platforms. Now that type of farming is inventive, but hardly unique. Right across Asia and in other parts of the developing world, many villages in remote or poor communities grow food in this way. But it's a difficult process and ultimately dependent on access to fresh water. Enter Holand Shu, a professor with the Future Industries Institute at the University of South Australia. Professor Shu has taken that basic concept of a floating garden and created a prototype vertical sea farm a self-sustaining solar-powered system with two layers. The top one functions as a glasshouse, while the bottom layer uses solar technology to desalinate the water needed for growing the plants. So it's a desalination device and a floating garden bed, all in one. Holand Shu. First consideration is because the land is very limited for agriculture, actually, because of drought, pollution. Another consideration is Clean water is really, really in shortage because also the growth of population. So considering both shortage in land and the clean water, then we propose that if we can plant food on sea surface, this will perfectly solve both clean water and land shortage problems. So is the idea that if this is successful in the future, we might see these kind of floating farms in, in rivers or along coastal stretches? Yes, uh, rivers, coastal stretches, also Salt Lake inland. It has very wide application scenarios. The plant can grow without any external freshwater or electricity supply. So it, it can float on seawater and automatically operate by itself. How large is the prototype that you've developed and, and can it be scaled up? Currently, the size is not that big. Later, we can produce bigger devices, but currently we can use this multiply of small units for scale up. If this is to have an impact in the developing world, cost is going to be an issue, isn't it? How do you factor yes. that in? 
I think the cost is quite cheap because we use commercially available materials. So the cost is not high. It's quite affordable. And uh, yeah, so all the materials, I think, is quite stable and uh, not big problem. When you look to the future, what's your hope for this technology? How would you like to see it play out? I, I really hope this technology can be used in many remote areas and developing country and poor country to solve both water and food shortages there. And I really hope that this technology can be commercialized or be really applied to solve real problems in the future. Holan Shu, a professor with the Future Industries Institute at the University of South Australia. And you're with Future Tense. Now, just before we go, a heads up about a new series of the Science Friction podcast, which is out now. Fronting the series is ABC technology reporter James Patil, and he joins us now. Hello, James. Hello, Anthony. How are you going? Now, this is a six-part series. What's the focus? AI, the topic of the moment. So we're doing where AI came from, who controls it, where it's heading. You know, I've been reporting on AI for years now, and a few months ago I sort of realised I didn't understand some of the fundamentals about how it worked how we got here, who controls it, and so on. So I've kind of gone into that and chased all these human stories to try, you know, because I think when we report on AI, it's often about kind of being amazed by the technology, but actually there's some amazing human stories behind that technology, and that's what I wanted to dive into. And your aim with this series is, yes, to look ahead, but you also give us the backstory to AI's development, don't you? Because it, it seems to a lot of people as though it's just burst onto the scene, but that's not the case, is it? Yeah, it's been around for decades, since the 50s, but it's kind of been bubbling away. Like, we've always been told that AI is right around the corner, but it kind of stayed in the movies. And then just around the 2010s, it started to get really good and started appearing on our phones, but we didn't really, you know, most people didn't know it was there. And then the breakout moment is in 2016, where a Google company named DeepMind reckons it has a shot at beating the best player in the world at a game called Go!, which is a board game that's been around for thousands of years, but it's very complex, very subtle, and AI up to this point has found it really hard to be good at it. And this company, DeepMind, says, our AI, AlphaGo, is going to take on the best player in the world at Go, Lisa Dole, kind of the Roger Federer of Go, the best of his generation. And what unfolds over that one week in Seoul in a hotel room changes the world. It brings us modern AI. This is how we get to today. And there's one particular moment in that week, in the first game, where Lisa Dole is playing this, this AI and you can see the moment where he realises that this AI is much, much better than he realised and he thinks, maybe I'm going to lose. Well, let's take a listen. This first game is going on and, you know, honestly, you know, we were not impressed the, the, the AlphaGo wasn't really doing anything special. It was looking pretty good for Lee Sedol. You know, he's, he's doing fine. Lee Sedol appears relaxed. He's played computers before and beaten them easily. It looks like this time won't be any different. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, huh. Well, Lee Sedol's fall, fallen behind a little bit, right? Again, go, it's a long game, but, you know, for a professional to fall behind, you know, that's interesting. Lisa Dole rests his chin on his hand, looks pensive and restless. 
The commentators observe that he's panicking. People sit up. A wave of excitement spreads through the room. The impossible is happening. Lee begins to struggle. This doesn't look good. And all of a sudden, it becomes clear that there's just no way that this, you know, Lee tried a couple of things. And soon, AlphaGo has won the first game. It was shocking. It was probably the most shocking thing I've ever seen in my life. He was shell-shocked. He knew he was representing humanity, and he felt like he had let humanity down. So Science Friction is the series, the human stories behind AI, and you can find it via the ABC Listen app in Australia or if you're overseas, wherever you get your podcasts. James Patel, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Anthony. And the name of the series, by the way, is Hello, AI Overlords. That's Science Friction. Well, that's it for another week. Thanks to producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to Future Tense. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.